Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I am excited to bring back an old friend and scholar, Christina Rossetti. Hello. It's good to be back. And as we were debating tonight's topic, there's so much to talk about. We were like, do we talk about the way that Mormon fundamentalists talk about sex and procreation, or do we talk about something else? It was close. We ultimately landed on something else. To be fair, Christina said last time I was on the podcast, I talked about sex and procreation. So we didn't we didn't want you to think she was a one-trick pony. She's got a lot uh, more to her. So tonight, we're going to talk about a group that I haven't really covered. People have asked me to cover it. I haven't covered it. A few reasons. First of all, when I first started out the podcast, I'll just be completely honest, I was... I was scared. I was nervous. I had heard rumors about this group. I heard that they weren't safe. And of course, you know, I had a lot of stigmas attached to it for some for good reason. But also, I'm an LDS person. And this group has a stigma against LDS people, which we'll talk about. So we're going to talk about a group called the TLC, the True and Living Church, also known as Jim Harmston's group. Now this gets confusing. If you're a polygamy uh, fan, that, that feels weird to say. If you watch the show Sister Wives, which is on the network TLC, we are not talking about the network TLC. Right. So we're talking about, it's a long name, so TLC for short, because the full name of the church is the True and Living Church of Jesus Christ of Saints of the Last Days. So it's a mouthful. And I was telling Lindsay before we decided, before we started recording that I actually got interested in the TLC because of her. I was on a plane home from a conference and I was finishing up my dissertation and she had an episode of Year of Polygamy where she, at the end of the episode, just started naming off fundamentalist groups that she didn't have time to cover, which is fair because there's something like 400. And and as she's naming off these groups, she kind of signals to the things that these groups are known for. And I was writing a dissertation on spirit communication and the dead and ghosts. And out of the blue, she says, oh, and the TLC who talked to spirits. And I paused the episode and I was like, that's it. I have to know absolutely everything about these people. I think I just actually brought you up in the last podcast about how for your PhD research, you were talking about Mormons who talk to the dead. And when you first told me that, I was like, yeah, Mormons don't do that. And you're like, no, no, no. Mormons who talk through the veil to the spirits. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, we totally do that. And this group is one of them. And so Christina, intrigued by this idea, sort of got to know this group. She actually has had special, unique access to this group, access that I don't even have. And I would say that I have a lot of unique, exclusive access except to this group. And Christina, can you explain why someone like me wouldn't have access to this group? Yeah. So I, I'm always cautious of making it sound more special than it probably was. During my research, I they don't have a website anymore. They took down their website to prepare for the end times. And so But of course, I needed to find them. And so I found the archive of their website and I started frantically emailing every email address on that website. Of course, you know, I got a million mailer demons. And people who were formerly members of this group absolutely talked to me. But there was one gentleman who um, I'm not going to name. And we'll talk about how there's different kind of groups that claim to be the TLC today. He was is a leader of one of those groups, and he felt reticent to bring in someone who had been endowed in an LDS temple into their home, into his home. And so me, being Roman Catholic, can get around that pretty easily because, obviously. And so I don't know how unique or special it was. Um, I don't know of many people who've worked with the TLC, but I was certainly appreciative and honored to be able to 
um, learn more about this group from people who still have testimonies. So this group is famous for those in Utah as the Manta Group. Their main headquarters is in Manta, Utah. We're going to talk about all of that. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to let Christina sort of walk us into the story. We're going to talk about Jim Harmston. And I actually think Jim Harmston is a fascinating case. Uh, He's got a lot of dimension to him, very interesting, very problematic. And of course, a lot of his his followers are going to find that offensive. But I mean, the man has done some pretty heinous things. So Harmston's an interesting example of how a lot of LDS people convert to fundamentalism. Again, there's so many stereotypes against fundamentalists, and I would like to think this podcast does a good job sort of breaking those down, but especially to LDS people who I think carry the largest stigma. LDS people, because they have spent the last century trying to distance themselves from those who practice plural marriage, might be shocked to find out that the majority of converts and people that start their own groups are from the LDS. You don't usually get some random, what we would call Gentile, off the street. That's a Mormon term. I had someone tell me that that was disrespectful to Jews. (laughs) And I'm like, well, all of Mormonism is disrespectful. We call non-Mormons Gentiles. Is it biblically accurate? No. But that's the word that, that Mormons have used. It's in our scripture. It's in our canon. And so I use it with affection, but as a sort of punching up at the Mormon institution. It's kind of a silly thing. So Gentiles don't start their own churches, uh, at least not Mormon churches. It's LDS people that do, and Jim Harmston was one of those. So, Christina, will you walk us into, I want you to tell us about Jim Harmston before the TLC is even a thing. What did we know about him? Yeah, so we don't have a whole lot, really. I mean, we have, you know, enough. So, Harmston was born on November 6th, 1940. He was a faithful member of the LDS church. He actually served a mission in Nauvoo, and attended all his weekly meetings. Um, but like many people, which you know, Lindsay has shown is such a trend and others have shown is such a trend, he became interested in church history. And that interest led him to continually searching for more information and ultimately for his own insights. He quickly got, garnered attention from people because of his charismatic style of teaching and leading discussion groups. And people actually drove from all over Utah and even from other states to listen to him talk about Mormonism. And this wasn't uncommon during the 1990s when Jim Harmston was kind of in his heyday. uh, Study groups weren't uncommon. People would gather together and talk about the church. And ultimately, a lot of time this led to discussion of what a lot of people kind of colloquially called deep doctrine. And that was a really big deal for him. So a lot of people might know that today there is a a remnant of this 90s study group thing that was going on that actually in the church handbook, it tells people not to participate in um, certain groups that increase specifically self-awareness, self-esteem, or spirituality. And so a lot of people have kind of thought that potentially this is a reaction to Harmston. Yeah. Okay. So I actually remember this as an LDS person. I remember... There there was a time, and I couldn't even tell you the time period. I was a teenager. I was older than ninth grade because I was interested enough in gospel topics. And there would be traveling firesides and study groups and things like this. It was in the 90s. And I remember going with my mom. And it would be, you know, people who had published books at Desert Book or, you know, seminary teachers, institute teachers, BYU professors, people that we considered had special knowledge of gospel topics. Especially me. You have to remember, I was not a fancy, well-to-do Mormon I did not grow up in Salt Lake with the fancy Mormon families. I was Scandinavian, Danish immigrant, chapel Mormon. 
in Murray, Utah, Murray 13th Ward, actually, to be exact. And these things were fascinating. It was, it was, I grew up in a whole world that I thought the whole world was Mormon. It was very, very sheltered. So when these people would come in, even if they were just, you know, an institute teacher, it, it was a big deal. And it was so cool. It was, it was Mormonism made interesting. And I remember when they started cracking down on these, I was really disappointed. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, people were driving from far away to see him. And actually, a lot of names that people might know in fundamentalism now were even involved, even though Harmston wasn't a fundamentalist at the time. But his teaching was so interesting. The conversations were so engaging that people were really excited about a new interest in Mormon history. And again, this is a time when Mormon history was thriving. People were interested in looking at the past in ways they hadn't before. And then Harmston dedicated a room in his house. And made a temple. Okay, so this might sound crazy to LDS people or Gentiles, but it's actually a pretty common thing since the LDS temples are theoretically closed to outsiders or ex-Mormons or Mormons that go off the deep end, then uh, people do it in their own homes. So living room altars are not that unusual, but Harmston's kind of was. Yeah. So like you said, this isn't uncommon. And I do want to note a lot of people who were born, you know, who are even my age might think of that as very strange, even people who are raised LDS. But it is worth noting that prayer circles weren't uncommon. So prayer circles actually existed outside of Mormonism in the 19th century, people joining together, holding hands and participating in communal prayer, very common. Mormonism took that and kind of moved it into the space of the temple. But Prayer circles were allowed outside of the temple up through into the 20th century. People could do that, and people were actually encouraged to do prayer circles and participate in the true order of prayer as a family. And this did include home altars, and home al- and altars were actually common in stake centers. And members of the high council would gather in stake centers in the true order of prayer. And let's not say that this is over. Again, I I hear stories all the time: temple workers going outside doing uh, prayer circles. You know, even Warren Jeffs. Had a room for prayer circles. Uh, LDS people still do prayer circles. Even in your dissertation research, you encounter people that did LDS people who did prayer circles. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially people who are older who remember the prohibition. So I'll read a little bit of the language from the prohibition. But the prohibition on home altars and the the true order of prayer outside of the endowment ceremony in the temple um, wasn't until 1978. So people who are my age might think this is strange, but up until 1978, people were doing this. And the letter to stake presidents and bishops that was said really only said, because it says, quote, because of the increasing number of requests for such prayer circles viewed in light of the rapid growth of the church and because of the complications that holding prayer circles in temples on Sunday have created and their tendency to take the participants away from their families and their other church responsibilities, the Council of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve has decided that all such prayer circles, whether held in the temple or outside the temples, be discontinued immediately. So they use the word complications. Let's talk about what those complications may have been referring to. So the true order of prayer and the home altar really was the turning point with Harmston. So again, um, this was in the 90s. So this is long after the ban on prayer circles and home altars. But Harmston really believed in this. And so we have to really remember that these are people who believed in the power of God and the power of God to intercede for people, believed in the priesthood. And so for leadership to tell people that you can't do this anymore, that's a huge 
halt to their spiritual lives. And so telling people to end that abruptly was hard. And so Harmston continued to do that. And November 25, 1990 was a turning point in the group. On that evening, Harmston and his wife dressed in their temple clothes uh, to perform the true order of prayer. And on that day, he knelt at the altar. And unlike ever before, he unlike ever unlike ever before, he recited the words necessary in the prayer circle and the veil opened. And what I mean by that is according to accounts from the True and Living Church and from Harmston, the divide between this world and the otherworldly was split. And I have a quote from a pamphlet that was published by the C- by the TLC called About the True and Living Church of Jesus Christ of Saints of the Last Days. And it says, quote, Jim Harmston had four angels appear to him and lay hands on him, thus ordaining him to the power and authority of the apostleship. These four these four beings were the resurrected patriarchs Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Moses. So the true order of prayer happens like it did frequently, but on this occasion, the difference was the veil parted, resurrected beings appeared, they were the great patriarchs of the Old Testament, and all of a sudden, within moments, Jim Harmston was the leader of a new Mormon movement. Okay, and we can't overemphasize the fact that his his credentials, especially in, you know, smaller LDS communities, as this sort of doctrinal man, this this teacher, really did a lot for him and gave him a lot of credibility. So how does he turn from this guy into a guy that gets quite a, a following? Yeah, so at the time already, people who are going to his study groups, many of the people, I want to be clear, because I, some of those people are people that I know and that we're friends with. <laughs> But people that we know went to his study groups. The people, who, many of the people who went there had already kind of seen his charisma, had seen that he had a special access to God and to the divine that they didn't have. And so when he came to them telling them this experience, for many, it wasn't crazy. It wasn't something that was out of the blue. It wasn't something that was unexpected. It wasn't actually until the 1994 meeting of the Sunstone Symposium sunstone you know how that place is um that harmston actually went outside of the symposium after telling multiple people that the study group would stay the same it was going to be business as usual we're just going to continue what we had been doing and he actually walked outside of the symposium and declared himself the prophet it wouldn't be the first (laughs) or the last time that that happens at sunstone we have a proud proud legacy at sunstone so didn't that happen this year it did we we did have another prophet declare uh, that he was the one mighty and strong-ish. I, I mean, it's a very nuanced, complicated process. But we do, uh, I do think it's a law irrevocably decreed in heaven that you have to denounce LDS authority and pronounce your authority at Sunstone. Okay, so he is he charismatic? What did we know about him personally? Yeah, so Harmston was wildly charismatic in every account of him that from people I've talked to and people who knew him, um, he did have a charisma and he also was very educated. He knew the topics, he knew the history. And so it wasn't shocking and people absolutely gravitated to him. But one thing that is important is whenever I talk about the TLC, a controversial teaching comes up that actually started before he announced the group. So in the 90s, the study group had started. And even before the announcing of the new group in 1994, Harmston had started to preach the importance, or not preach, but discuss the importance of living polygamy, plural marriage. And before the announcement, controversy had already started in Manti because there were rumors circulating about a controversial doctrine. I've heard people call it the three in a bed doctrine. Have you heard this? 
I've actually heard it traced back to Brigham Young, but I have been searching for that. And the only thing I can find legitimately is a, an anti-Mormon comic of like, you know, 40 of Brigham's wives in a bed. But that's that's really it. So tell us about the doctrine and can you trace it back to early prophets? No. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure someone can, but I certainly can't. The, I, a lot of people, the, this big controversy started that Harmston was preaching quote, the three in a bed doctrine. The doctrine actually has a name that isn't the three in a bed doctrine. The doctrine is referred to as hearts and flowers. Hearts and flowers. Uh, I'm excited to learn more. Tell me more. So when it was explained to me um, by an individual who had been a member of the TLC, it was, you know, just as a bee goes from flower to flower. Do you want me to explain what your face looks like? <laughs> so, but what what's actually interesting is this was really pinned on Harmston and I got to stop you right there. Uh, I love the beehive beehive iconography that Mormonism possesses. I have it in my office. I have it tattooed on my body. This is a bridge too far for me. Uh, It's just, it's so Victorian uh, innuendo and too flowery. And considering the context, I'm a little nervous of where this is going. So the idea was that someone within kind of the early group of the church started teaching that men could have sexual relations with multiple wives at the same time. And this kind of got pinned on Harmston. And I don't want to say um, Jim Harmston is not without controversy, and we'll definitely get to that. I would actually say that he is surrounded by controversy. But um, interestingly, this is actually not on Harmston. Um, Harmston very quickly disavowed the teaching, and this disavowal constituted one of the first schisms within the TLC, even before the group was formally announced. Interesting. So, and... We're going to talk about his little schism groups in a minute, but why don't we talk about uh, more of the doctrine, more of the practices, and then I want to get into some of the darker stuff, and it's going to get dark, so if you have kids in the room, maybe, you know, you should know better than to let little littles listen to this podcast. Yeah, so Harmston begins his group, and of course, like many groups, the biggest like many groups, the big point is that the LDS church had changed too much. And because of the importance of the true order of prayer, because of the endowment ceremony, because of all that focus, the big issues were the changes to the endowment that happened in 1990. So the most dramatic changes at the time, not to get too specific, were the changes to the removal of the penalties. And Jim Harmston and the people that followed him were very concerned that the LDS church was becoming, wait for it, a modern Catholic church. How did they figure, I mean, is it because we were out of order and we were the great whore of Babylon or something, or did they trace specific doctrines or practices that they thought were too Catholic? No, so it wasn't specific doctrines, but, you know, the Roman Catholic Church for his, in his, historically was the, quote, great and abominable, as discussed in the Book of Mormon. And when the LDS Church started changing, a lot of members of the TLC began preaching that they had trans- transgressed too far. They actually have a great pamphlet um, called They Have Transgressed the Laws, Changed the Ordinances, Broken the Everlasting Covenant. It's a great pink uh, pamphlet that the TLC published. Okay. Um, first of all, I've seen a lot of fundamentalist pamphlets. I have to give them credit that they're really cute. They're really cute. Um, the fonts are great. However, this is a long title. Also a long title. Can we get some pictures of this so we can put these up? They have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, broken the everlasting covenant. Uh, I wonder what this is about. (laughs) 
published by the True and Living Church of Jesus Christ of the Saints of the Last Days in Manti, Utah. And then about this pamphlet, can I read from this a little bit? This is one of a series of pamphlets written by direction of the Lord for the specific purpose of warning Israel and gathering the elect in the last days. The promised setting in order of his house has begun, and this message is being published to his children who have ears to hear. Now, remember, it's a common fundamentalist idea uh, that really, really goes far back to early fundamentalist days that the church was out of order because it left polygamy. But Harmston has other reasons to believe that the LDS church is out of order. The pamphlet continues, the truths, the truths which are presented in this pamphlet may be hard for some readers to accept, even though they are plain and forthright. However, we declare that they are the same truths which were taught by Joseph Smith Jr., the Lord's prophet and head of the last dispensation. The prophet Joseph Smith said, If any man preach any other gospel than that which I have preached, he shall be cursed. President Brigham Young said, I told the people that if they would not believe the revelations that God had given, he would suffer the devil to give revelations that they, priests and people, would follow after. I told the people that as true as God lived, if they would not have the truth, they would have air sent unto them and they would believe it. So already they're laying out a pretty harsh case uh, using quotes from the OG prophets, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. And then uh, I'm just going to continue because I think this is really interesting. For most of those who call themselves Latter-day Israel, apostasy has once more set in. And again, the saving principles and ordinances of of the gospel have been changed to suit the conveniences and notions of the people. And so this would be, they're arguing that, you know, like, for example, the 1978 revelation was a cultural, uh, it was the LDS church, you know, giving into cultural pressure, which... uh, it actually, it, it very much was. I think that was a good change. But they're saying that this is evidence that the church is out of order. It says, Acquiring truth is a pursuit too difficult for most men and women to accept, and the sacrificial demands of truth will almost extinguish their numbers. To accept the truth is to accept the fullness of the gospel, and that means to believe all that God reveals. Yes, that is what it means to accept and live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Only the pure in heart, men and women of great faith, strive to keep all of God's laws and ordinances. Unfortunately, most people are afraid they will err and make no attempt at the judgment that is required to find truth. However, the Lord has directed us to judge not unrighteously, but judge righteous judgment. He has told us how to make righteous judgment, to trust in that spirit with leadeth, which leadeth to judge righteously, and this is my spirit." We testify that the heavens are again open, and once again, God offers light to the darkened Israel as he sets his house in order. Please read this pamphlet with an open mind and a willing heart. If you have real intent, the Lord invites your prayers that he may reveal to you the truth of these things by the witness of the Holy Ghost, and by the power of the Holy Ghost you may know the truth of all things. All praise and honor and glory be to God, our Father and Creator, to Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, and to Joseph Smith, Jr., the Witness and Testator, the true and living Church of Jesus Christ, the Saints of the Last Days. And so I have a few comments there. The first one is so the f- the first one is that most Mormon groups that Lindsay has done has talked about over the course of this podcast are groups that trace a, a lineage to something. They trace their priesthood lineage to usually Joseph Smith, obviously, but they have a line of people, whether it's from Joseph Smith directly and they're now Community of Christ, or they became Strangite, or they are um, people who split off in 1886 with the 1886 revelation of John Taylor. Most of the fundamentalist groups that people are aware of have a historic lineage to something. 
What makes the Harmston Group or the TLC so interesting is they don't. They don't at all. And the reason for that is they make very clear that the LDS Church is in a complete state of apostasy. So unlike some fundamentalist groups that still think the LDS Church is the mother church or still has some authority, but they just don't have ceiling authority, the TLC believes that the LDS Church has no authority at all. And so the TLC is not a continuation. It's a re-restoration. I'm really glad that you pointed that out because that is a huge thing. A lot of the groups that we talk about trace lineage back to John Taylor, but there are a bunch and an increasing number, I would say, of people who maybe because of folks like Warren Jeffs or people that see that old fundamental sign as archaic, rural, old cowboy, they find new ways to reclaim uh, their authority. And one of them is having revelations of God. And that's why we talked about Chad Daybell last week, you know, and we have updates we might talk about with him later on. It's too early to tell if his is going to turn into something like this, but there's a lot of folks like this who claim to have, you know, a special witness, a special gift or ordination. And the pamphlet, not only is it cute, it's pretty well written. It speaks a language that pushes all the buttons for LDS people. Like I'm reading it. It's very familiar. It's very, it translates very well to someone like me who grew up with that language. It's almost like I'm just reading something at church. Absolutely. And the other thing I want to note before we jump into kind of the big thing that differentiated the TLC from other people is at the end, you say, all praise, honor, and glory be to God, our Father and Creator, to Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, and to Joseph Smith, Jr., the Witness and Testator. And I don't want to get too much into fundamentalist theology because if you really (laughs) dive in to fundamentalist theology, it's really complicated. And for if you've met me, you know that the Adam-God doctrine is my favorite thing in Mormonism. And I say that and it usually makes me sound weird or like I just have a weird thing for fundamentalism. But the reality is the reason I like the Adam-God doctrine is I think it makes a lot of Mormonism make sense. And it also has really unique intricacies within Mormonism that the LDS Church doesn't have anymore that I think are very compelling and, again, make a lot of Mormonism's, the LDS version of Mormonism's loose ends kind of tied together. And so without, you know, kind of delving too much in, I do want to note that when they say praise, honor, and glory be to the Father, to Jesus, and Joseph Smith, they're talking about the Trinity. And so that's something that I don't know how much you've gotten into that, but in a lot of fundamentalist groups, Joseph Smith is the body is the body of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost took a body in this dispensation and the body is Joseph Smith. And so many people might be familiar with the fact that the Holy Ghost is referred to as the witness and testator and Joseph Smith referred to himself as a witness and testator. And so there's kind of, you know, here and there quotes that have been pieced together, but in a lot of fundamentalist groups, the Holy Ghost has a body. And that was that's actually a question I've asked seminary teachers a lot, or institute teachers quite a bit is if bodies are so important, why doesn't the Holy Ghost have one? And one of the reasons I thought fundamentalism was so compelling is because they looked at me and said he does. Also, I was really shocked to learn that in Joseph Smith's Kirtland period, he was preaching Trinitarian gospel. I didn't know that until I started spending time in Kirtland because especially because LDS missionaries, you know, my ex-husband served his mission to West Virginia and they spent the majority of their mission arguing over that that idea with, you know, Protestant Christians, evangelicals uh, about is God, you know, Trinitarian or not? And to realize that that there's a huge strain of that, a legitimate strain that runs in Mormonism is quite surprising to a lot of people. Okay, what what other pamphlets do we have? Follow the Brethren, Fact or Fiction. Marriage and Divorce 
prepared by the first presidency and quorum of the 12 apostles of the true and living church of Jesus Christ of since of the last days. And you actually are probably going to really like this because it actually has the entire sealing ceremony, the words to it in the pamphlet. And this pamphlet was given out publicly. This wasn't an in- internal pamphlet. It was very much a missionary tool and they have the words to the sealing in the pamphlet. Okay, let's look at this. I had a Mormon wedding. Um, so, and you know, I, I've read the ceremony that Warren Jeffs has done and it's very, very, very similar, almost identical to the one that I said. So let's see what we got here. They lay out the case, lots of quotes from Brigham Young, talking a lot about covenants. What happens if you break covenant? Okay. So I'm going to read this. It says, after appropriately being endowed, persons are eligible for the holy order of matrimony in the new and everlasting covenant. This marriage covenant is expressed at the altar in this way, quote, Brother blank, do you take sister blank by the right hand and receive her unto yourself to be your lawful and wedded wife, and you to be her lawful and wedded husband for time and all eternity, with a covenant and promise that you will observe and keep all the laws, rights, and ordinances pertaining to this holy order of matrimony in the new and everlasting covenant, and this you do in the presence of God, angel, and these witnesses of your own free will and choice. This is fascinating because this is almost identical to the LDS ceiling. And I would be in trouble for saying this, right? This is a covenant that we take, but this is a pamphlet published for public consumption from a different church. So this is, I'm kind of having a wild moment right now because this is sacred stuff for people. Can you read the sister one? I feel like, I feel like I'm breaking a covenant. Yeah, you, you didn't take an oath. I took an oath. I know, but I feel like I took an oath being your friend. <laughs> Are we going to still be friends? Um, I feel weird saying it. Well, so, okay. So I, I, I can say it because after the quote, it very specifically has in in parentheses where you would put a citation, marriage ceremony, comma, the true and living church of Jesus Christ of saints of the last days. It is important that it does say marriage ceremony, comma, the true and living church of Jesus Christ of saints of the last days. And we can put that a picture of that in to show people because this was, again, a pamphlet that was handed out to people. Yeah, this is weird. Like, Christine and I are both having this moment where we're like, Mitt Romney's going to appear, the spirit of Mitt Romney, and we're going to be struck down. And I, I want to say that on the back of the pamphlet, it specifically says, note, this document has been thoroughly reviewed by the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve and has been presented by the Lord over the altar. By revelation from God, it is pleasing to him that his people abide in the principles contained herein. Fascinating. Okay. So we've got that published. Uh, what else have we got? We've got Book of Mormon Warning in the Last Days, the Gathering of the Elect. And this is actually really interesting because uh, Jim Harmston taught that the Gathering of the Elect was happening in San Pete County, that that was the new gathering place of the saints. A Warning Testimony, The Atonement, Joseph Smith Jr., and then, of course, Zion and Babylon. (laughs) I got to look at this one. I can't read the marriage ceremony and not look at this. Oh, okay. So this is great. Um, about this pamphlet, it says, okay, so it looks like they have the same little uh, thing in the whole thing where they give the intro, but Zion versus Babylon, this pamphlet is going to help us identify Zion and its attributes, identify Babylon and its characteristics, review the history of the saints and the cause of Zion, view the performance of the saints today in relation to Zion contrasted by the scriptures and words of the prophet, bear witness of the redemption of Zion and the conditions required by God's covenant people. So it lays out this case of what Zion is, quotes a lot from Brigham Young. But here's the page I opened to, which I just want to dig into a little bit. And again, I'm just seeing these for the first time. Okay, this is what I opened to, and it really caught my eye. It's um, talking about what uh, Zion is. It talks about repentance, temporarily, 
repentance temporally and politically. And then it lays out repenting uh, and why we need to repent. But then it talks about politics. It's so interesting. It says, political repentance requires a recognition of support to a contrary plan which opposes Zion. Satan implements his own counterfeit to Zion by introducing man-made global peace <laughs> and one world government. So the idea of global globalism is uh, apparently from Satan. This plan is attempting to annihilate the establishment of Christ's kingdom in the millennium and impose tyranny and slavery on mankind. That's so fascinating. That's so uh, absent of any historical context. But, uh, and also it's wildly hypocritical in the sense that globalism is bad, yet Zion is going to bring everyone together in a global community. So I don't, I don't understand how that works, but that is why I am not a believer in this tradition. Yeah. So you need to, let's see, it says this plan is attempting, see the secret combination is clearly identified in the book of Mormon. And we are advised to not let this awful situation overcome us to our destruction. And then it cites ether 822.25 in the book of Mormon. We testify that this very conspiracy is at work today, that misery and death are the fruits of the satanic plot. It encompasses all nations, even the United States. Do not be fooled by anyone who will state that the new world order, global peace, or the United Nations are tools for the spreading of the gospel or the peaceful path to the millennium. Such men are wolves in sheep's clothing and are enemies to God. The Lord has has advised his people not to make covenants with foreign gods. Yeah, it's just so, so fascinating because uh, to in order to have like a cohesive Mormon movement, you have to establish an outside enemy, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the LDS church really kind of became that in a lot of ways. If you've ever been to Manti, um, which has my favorite temple, and I've told people who I've interviewed for this that the Manti temple sits very prominently in the city of Manti. And when I've talked to some people, they remember very specifically being taught that the Manti temple would be one of the first to fall in the destructions, and their temple would rise. Okay, but isn't Harmston also known in his group known for like sneaking into the Manti temple? That was like a, a thing that they were known for doing. So I think that, as you know, better than anyone, fundamentalists get a bad rap and a lot of it isn't always warranted. And one of the big rumors about the TLC that I want to talk a little bit about is this idea that they were sneaking in and doing secret plural ceilings in the Manti temple. Um, I actually don't know of instances of that happening. So again, Harmston was Mormon. So of course he was going in the Manti temple um, and his followers were Mormon. So of course they were going in the Manti temple and doing endowments and doing ceilings. Importantly though, when Harmston declared that the LDS church was apostate and no longer had authority, his people stopped going in it because it was apostate. So it was more of a double dip sort of situation. Yes, to my knowledge. Okay, so uh, what else do we need to know about the TLC? Tell us about the group and then let's get into how the group sort of fell apart. There's two things that really interested me about it. Jim Harmston started doing these kind of classes called the models. And the models became really famous and that they were a seminar series, basically, where Jim would expound on doctrine. What made these really interesting to me, so I want to be clear that I've never seen the models. I've seen like stills of them. And then interestingly, a lot of people would make these really intricate, beautiful diagrams. I've shown Lindsay a few of them of what Jim was saying. But speaking to a lot of people, one of the things that really came through is that Jim would almost be in like a trance-like state when he was doing these, which really added to this idea that he was revelating and receiving this direct from God. So the models were a series basically. And those who 
witnessed them, one person referred to them as, quote, a gradual course in restoration theology. So Mormonism gets a bad rap for not having theology. And this was kind of Jim's response to that, for lack of a better word, that he would expound on theology. This was like a three to four day period. People would spend hours listening to Jim talk about theology. The big one, though, was called the Grand Model. This was the last one, um, and this model focused on the path to godhood and exaltation. And so, for lack of a better word, it was basically a step-by-step on how to attain exaltation. And when we talk about exaltation, you know, the LDS Church and a lot of Christian traditions kind of have an easy for, like, salvation, right? Here's a step-by-step to salvation. You believe in Jesus, you're baptized, confirmed, that is salvation. But the LDS Church doesn't really give you a step-by-step on exaltation that I know of. But Jim Hermston did. He gave specifics on how to attain exaltation. Okay. And the models, how I would explain them, and this is not quite accurate, but this is the best way to sort of contextualize them because they're not anything as an LDS person that I'd ever really witness. They looked more Scientologist to me. They, you know, there is a little new agey stuff with it. Can you get the, can you get the little, yeah, what is it called? The grand model. Christina, how does it feel to be the expert on the TLC? It's um, what I've lived for. My parents are really proud. (laughs) Um, So the grand model is complicated. So it starts at pre-mortality. You move past the veil, which is very LDS. So a lot of LDS people will kind of know a few of these. So you're in pre-mortality. You move past the veil. You go into mortality. And then the steps at the beginning of the rung are things that LDS Mormons will know. Baptism. Yes gift of the Holy Ghost, priesthood, initiatory, endowment, marriage, and then it'll stop. So at that point, the next step on the rung is the born again process. And the born again process is you taking on the name of Christ, celestial plural marriage, consecration, washing of feet, your second anointing, receiving the fullness of the priesthood, translation, and then resurrection, and then a joint heir with Christ. So one of the things that was really compelling about Harmston is Harmston taught that you could be translated now as a person, um, that that wasn't an unattainable goal in this life that translation could happen. Okay, let me look at it. I want to kind of describe what it looks like because it's it's actually this really cool. It's almost like a ladder. On the right side, it says justification. On the left side, uh, sanctification. And those are sort of the pillars on the ladder. And then the rungs go with baptism. Like you said, gives the Holy Ghost, priesthood, initiatory, endowment, marriage. As we move up, born again process. There on the name of Christ. Take on the name of Christ. Celestial plural marriage. It's pretty low on the, the ladder. It's like halfway. Resurrection is I see. So it's like halfway up there. And then we have consecration, gathering, brother's feet washed in anointing, brother anointed with olive oil. Ordinances are sealed by officiator. Then it says fullness of priesthood and calling and election made sure. Then woman's resurrection claim. Is that right? Ordinance of trans... Translation, resurrection, ordinance, and then joint heirs. And then there's this whole other thing. We'll post that as well. It's... Uh, sorry, we can't post that. That's a sacred document. So we are not going to post that, but I'm sure you could probably find it somewhere. Um, okay, keep going. So one of the things, the secondary thing that became so compelling to the TLC about the TLC to me that will, this is all going to tie around into a big moment of us talking about who Jim Harmston really was. Um, Jim Harmston taught a doctrine that is that was super interesting. He taught multiple mortal probations. And we're going to go ahead and call that MMP for short because it's complicated. So MMP is often kind of referred to as reincarnation, but it's the teaching that souls can return and take different bodies. 
um, kind of like reincarnation, except in the TLC, it, you would you couldn't go into a different species, for example. And this isn't without precedent. So many people, kind of many people who believe in this doctrine, point to even Heber C. Kimball, Joseph Smith, for teaching for teaching this doctrine with some authority. And a lot even point to Doctrine and Covenants 88, which states, And they who remain shall also be quickened. Nevertheless, they shall return again to their own place to enjoy that which they are willing to receive because they were not willing to enjoy that which they might have received. So the teaching is basically that if you, that you have to continually acquire knowledge and you have to continually progress. And in order to continually progress, you can return again. And so one of the interesting things about the TLC is the TLC really prominently taught this doctrine to the point that when people would receive their patriarchal blessings, their patriarchal blessings would often tell them who they were in their past lives, which was really interesting. And some people even were told who they were now. Jim Harmston was the Holy Ghost incarnate. Jim Harmston was Joseph Smith. So that's where the body comes from for the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Ghost took the body of Joseph Smith in that dispensation. But you have to remember as a re-restoration, this is another dispensation and the Holy Ghost isn't just gone. And so the idea with multiple mortal probations as taught by Jim Harmston was that Joseph Smith took on a body again and it's him. Got it. Okay. Okay. So, so what are some of the other unique claims that Harmston was making? So one of the it, I mean, this is connected to how it kind of stops. But um, one of the things that Jim Harmston taught that was really interesting was that you could be translated in this life. And to be translated was to kind of open the gates of heaven and see God face to face. And he would have these um, elaborate rituals where people would perform the true order of prayer all night long together. Large groups of people would be doing the true order of prayer. And the idea was if they would continually do this all night long, they could pierce the veil and open it. Of course, at certain moments, Jim Harmston would say that he could see it piercing and he could see it opening. And then because of people's lack of faith, it would close again. Got it. Okay. So a lot of this seems like, I don't know, really compatible uh, with LDS doctrine, really compelling, especially for people who want further light and knowledge. So where, why didn't it, uh, it, and it did attract a lot of followers for a while, but obviously this, this group is, uh, shrouded with a cloud of pain and abuse. Do you want to talk about that? So that story I mentioned of translation, um, prior to that, Jim Harmson began really teaching that that ritual would usher in the end times and that if they could pierce the veil, if they could see beyond it, the end would come. And he actually offered people revelation in which he asked God to assure him that this would happen. And he was told that Jesus would return, that the three Nephites would be there as well. And importantly, and he was told that this would happen if the Church of the Firstborn prepared themselves. Like many groups, um, the Temporal Church was the True and Living Church of Jesus Christ of Saints of the Last Days. But alternatively, there was also a secondary church that met under the TLC, which was the Church of the Firstborn. And in those moments, that's where all of the saints would come back. Joseph Smith would, would be in the meetings. Even Heavenly Father would be there. And so he told people, and these were kind of the most elect members of the community, and he told them that if the Church of the Firstborn was faithful and prepared themselves, that they could usher in the end times. There is a revelation that he gave where he spoke to Adam, and Adam told, Adam is God, and at, I said that so sure, Adam's God, Lindsay. Um, and Adam tells the people, quote, yes, tell the gathered saints to come to me in solemn prayer, asking for them to, and I will grant their faith filled request. I will give to them witnesses that they have the faith to allow this to come to pass. So the problem is, is that with the doctrine of translation, people believed that it was going to end. And so the TLC sold everything. 
Their followers sold their possessions. People maxed out their credit cards. Um, everything was gone. People were buying very lavish items thinking that they were going to furnish the Manti temple once it was cleansed of the LDS church. So people started going into abject poverty, getting rid of everything they had, believing that Jim was telling the truth about the end. Okay, so people start sacrificing a lot. The doctrine is escalating. It's so interesting why the second coming has to come and come super, super fast. I mean, maybe it's because the LDS, we backed away from that. We we just keep it going and going and going. I mean, I come from a generation where we were the generals in the war in heaven, uh, foreordained to this world to see the last days. And some of us in our patriarchal blessings, you know, were promised that we'd see the face of Christ before we died. And of course, that's come out in all kinds of sideways ways. But uh, we're not anxious to have the destructions here. And yet he seemed to ramp that up. Yeah. To the point that this actually went to court, like people took Harmston to court <laughs> for this. So this wasn't, so it, of course, you know, in 2005 came and went, that's when Jim Harmston said that the end was coming. And there was actually a court case in 2005 where a plaintiff came forward and said that they had been victims of fraud, of fraud, constructive fraud, negligent misrepresentation, fraudulent conversion, racketeering, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. This was taken to trial um, and it was it, the appeals court and the jury sided with the plaintiff and the TLC actually settled for $60,000, uh, which came from tithing money. Okay, but this is just the beginning of the troubles for Harmston, right? So the real kind of end, I would say, not end, but struggle with the TLC actually came from the practice of polygamy. So Sanjeev Bhattacharya, who you've had on your show, right? Yeah, you had on your show. And he, he wrote a book called Secrets and Wives, The Hidden World of Mormon Polygamy. And if you talk to people who were part of the TLC at this time, of course, they have problems with his narration of the story, but there is truth to it, despite any problems that were going that could happen. Um, so he tells the story of a woman named Angie, who became a member, who was a member of the church with her mother. And Angie was sealed to Jim Harmston when she was 16 years old, and he was 57. Um, in order to lower suspicion in the community, uh, Harmston arranged for Angie to be sealed to one of his sons. So Angie was sealed to Jim Harmston's son, Jacob. Um, but in reality, she was sealed to Harmston. Um, and so the problem, though, is that in the state of Utah, underage marriage is common and it's legal. And so at the time and still today, that marriage would actually be considered okay. When we talk about, yeah, so when we talk about underage marriage in the state of Utah, up until last year, you could get married at the age of 15 with parental consent. Um, I've talked quite a bit about the fact that parental consent is tricky when you're talking about communities like this, where it's where people believe and people are being told to do something by a leader. And so of course, people are going to consent. So if you could get married at 15, but you know, now you can get married at 16. And so Angie was 16 years old. He was 57. One of the problems with ages of consent is ages of consent never taken the age gap into, into account. And so when we talk about age of consent, if you can, you can get married at 16 in Utah, but no one says, everyone kind of assumes you're going to be marrying a peer. But the reality is a lot of people are marrying people a lot older. And so because Angie's mother was also a member of the TLC. So of course she would have approved of this. Her daughter was going to marry the prophet. So that was the first kind of big moment, but it wasn't, but it wasn't until later um, a book came out a lot. You can get the book online. It's called Polygamy's Rape of Rachel Strong. And the story is of a young girl named Rachel who was 16 when uh, she was first married to another member of the group by Jim. So as stated previously, this marriage was not technically illegal, but it did receive 
It did receive, it, it was controversial. She recalled receiving instruction not to get pregnant um, and being put under care of two women in the group. This you might find interesting. Um, she was put under the care of two women named Gail Romero and Laura Brock Brokaw. Um, and these two women were actually part of Arvind Shreve's group prior. Do you want to talk about Arvind Shreve? Yeah, we. I can link to that episode. Okay, so yeah, so lots of underage marriage. This This is unfortunately a thing. I don't understand... Truly, this is this is the one part like I can track most of the doctrine, even if I, you know, disagree with it strongly, I can track where they get it. I don't get where this doctrine comes from other than the historical precedent of early LDS leaders marrying young girls. But there was a historical context for that doesn't make it right at all. But the reason was they either ran out of girls or there was this urgency to the doctrine. And and I just I don't understand in any context why anyone would track that that was okay. It just seems to me that it's, uh, we were talking about this earlier off the podcast, that the, the danger in a lot of this fundamentalist doctrine is, and in leadership and in patriarchy and in hierarchy, is people with these inclinations to harm children find a doctrine to sort of incorporate it. And that's really the only, the only reason that I can find for people to do this. It's just horrifying. Yeah. So uh, the part that makes it even harder. So Rachel was married when she was 16. Sorry, I don't know if I made it clear that she wasn't married immediately to Harmston. She was married to someone else. She was told not to become pregnant. She ends up becoming pregnant. And she was... So Rachel was married at 16. She ends up becoming pregnant, even though she's told not to. And like we've talked about in other episodes about sexuality, um, these are groups that aren't actively using birth control. And so of course she becomes pregnant. What makes this challenging is Harmston instructed her husband to remove her from the home and that leaves her vulnerable. What is she supposed to do? And by her account of the story, it was at this time that Harmston went to her and told her, she was 20 now, that any chance of progression she had would come from being sealed to him. We've probably heard this story before. So she's 20 years old at the time. Harmston is 64 and she's sealed to Harmston and she recalls the, tra the trauma of kneeling across the altar of Harmston and being sealed to him when he's old enough to be her grandfather. And this raised a lot of questions on how we talk about coercion, how we talk about rape, how we talk about marriage with huge age gaps in Mormon communities. Yeah, it does. And and I think that Harmston's become sort of the cautionary tale for a lot of fundamentalists too, because, you know, you and I have heard a lot of rumors and that's kind of another reason why I've avoided the story. It's really hard for me to verify the stories that I've heard because I've heard some really horrifying things, but the things that we can prove, horrifying enough, right? So I, I really quickly want to say Harmston ends up dying. That's actually how, you know, the first kind of iteration of the TLC ends. Harmston dies of a heart attack. Um, it was interesting because he died at San, at San Pete Valley Hospital. He had a history of heart trouble, but his death was still considered unexpected. And he died on June 27th, 2013. Do you know why that day is special? Yeah, I do. Uh, June 27th is the day Joseph Smith died. So Jim Harmston, the embodied Joseph Smith in this time, died on the same day as Joseph Smith's martyrdom. And so you can only... Imagine how people who believed in him as their prophet, people who believed that he was Joseph Smith, believed that he was the Holy Ghost, would be validated in their opinion that he died on the same day. So the problem, of course, with any death of a charismatic figure is what happens next. The TLC did undergo schism um, following the death. There is a majority TLC movement. Um, their buildings are they no longer have signage on them. If you go down to Manti, 
their buildings were super cool. They had a red brick store. They had a meeting house. The meeting house still has the words assembly hall on it. it they're very, they're beautiful. I love those buildings. Um, there's a majority TLC group that still has those buildings, but there are other groups that claim to have, that claim to be the successor to Harmston and claim to be the true, the true and living church of Jesus Christ of saints of the last days. Yeah. So can you briefly tell us about some of the different sects that exist? Because it's hard for me to even track. So there's two kind of major ones right now. Um, the first one is by is being led by one of Harmsden's former apostles. And he's, you know, running the TLC as having been appointed into that position. However, of course, his appointing is not without controversy. And people do say that he wasn't supposed to be the successor. Um, and that led to some people getting excommunicated. And so under the new leadership, there were people that were excommunicated. And a couple of the people who had been excommunicated, surprisingly, um, including one of Jim's wives, she's actually a member of this other group, um, the, the wife that knelt with him when he became the prophet. She's a member of this other group. They actually have Harmston's altar. Um, and so that's kind of an interesting claim that they have. Obviously, that's not their only claim to authority, but they do have his altar. And so there's different people. There's also people who've been, who were excommunicated when Harmston died that are no longer technically part of the church. They're no longer part of the TLC, but they still have a testimony in Harmston and they still have a testimony in what he taught. And then there are, of course, people who disaffected, were excommunicated and want nothing to do with it. Okay. Well, I think that's a pretty good synopsis of this. Hopefully, maybe you'll publish something. I mean, you have a little bit. There's a chapter in your dissertation, right? Can we link to that? We can't link to that. Uh, so the chapter that we're talking about, um, it's under revision right now. I'm going to be sending it to publication at the end of the month. And so academic publications take a long time. And so hopefully it'll come out soon, but I'm working on it. Yeah, perfect. Because there's not a lot of known to parse out fact and fiction, but still fascinating uh, case study. So thanks again, Christina, for coming on. We will have you back on probably to talk about procreation at some point, because that's what we like to do. Thanks. You're the best. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening. <laughs>